I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. This episode explores what is surely one of the hottest hot-button issues of our day. How should we view environmentalism? And what is our obligation to God's creation? The Bible gives us clear answers that cut through all the emotional hype. We need to refocus. Let's start with this heartfelt article, Caring About Creation for the Right Reasons. I have loved the outdoors ever since my dad first took me camping with the Cub Scouts. It was the last day of our trip in the Tinkers Falls area of upstate New York. As we left the forest for the car, I distanced myself from the others and began to cry. My father ran over to me and said, What's the matter, Tommy? Are you homesick? Don't worry, we'll be home soon. To which I replied, as tears poured down my cheeks, I don't want to go home. I want to stay. That first experience opened a floodgate of natural adventures. Canoeing amidst the shroud of morning mists. Walking with bears skiing under the eerie apparitions of Alaska's northern lights, and being serenaded by eastern wolves. In nature, I sense something divine and greater than myself, whether I walked on a lonely beach or listened to the chatter of animals in the forest at night. I felt there was something sacred and spiritual about nature, worth saving, even worshiping. I easily related to the views of pantheists, pagans, indigenous people, and Wiccans. My goal in life was to live away from people and become one with nature. On television, I watched helicopter hunters chase wolves and shoot them from the air for sport. In moments like this, I knew nature was worth protecting and humans were evil and parasitic. I was horrified by the doomsday scenarios about what mankind is doing to nature. The exponential growth of human population was clearly a cancer threatening our planetary future. Starting in forestry college, a series of events shook my world. I was confronted with the reality of the one and only God. When I surrendered and fell in love with my Savior Jesus Christ, my affections were completely refocused. This new relationship with the Creator started me on an odyssey to determine whether He really cares about creation, and if so, how He wanted me to respond. A Transition of Affections I had to rethink everything. Before knowing Christ, my affections had revolved around Earth's beauty and her creatures. I held two views. First, I was biocentric. Because of my background in biology, I saw how all organisms were interrelated. I believed they all had inherent worth because they've struggled millions of years just to survive. So all had a right to protection, not just humans. Second, I was also an ecocentrist. I focused on the interconnectedness of nature and how our survival depends on being in harmony with nature. One of my ecocentric heroes was Aldo Leopold, the father of wildlife management and champion of the land ethic. In addition, my biological training was in evolutionary naturalism. I knew that if nothing else, Spaceship Earth was all there was, 
and we must do all in our power to save her. As my relationship with the Creator grew, I realized that my belief in the natural world as the source of all value was wrong and a form of idolatry, so I rejected both views. But did I have to accept the opposite view that I had always rejected, that the only purpose of nature is to serve the greater good of mankind? Most environmentalists hate this anthropocentric view. I was glad when I realized that the anthropocentric view was also wrong for the same reason. It, too, is a form of idolatry. So what is the right position? The only way to determine God's perspective on anything is for God Himself to communicate it to us. He has done this by giving us the Bible. Its message centers on the life and redeeming work of Christ. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Theologians Mark Lederbach and Seth Bible refer to Christ, the Creator and Savior of the world, as the true north for humanity. Like a boat floating aimlessly without navigation equipment, our world is morally adrift without Christ, never knowing how to navigate a course that honors God and addresses creation issues in a way that brings glory to Christ. Putting Christ at the center of our thinking is the first step toward building a wise model of creation care and planetary stewardship. Christ the Creator The first biblical basis for creation care is the fact that God is distinct from all creation, including human beings. He is the reason all things exist. Without Him, nothing exists. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. The one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All are involved with the creation, but the Son is the primary agent. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. No other gods are before Him, so He is our ultimate measure for what is right and good. Genesis chapter 1 makes several things clear. God is the subject of the account. Before making man, He declares six times that His creation is good. He takes joy in it, and that implies that the world and the universe have value beyond their value to man, even the playfulness of Leviathan, Psalm 104. It is evident that the primary purpose of this good creation is to direct our worship back to Him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Psalm 19, and Psalm 24, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, explains that God carefully designed creation as a physical illustration of His invisible qualities, so that we would recognize and worship Him for who He is. Christ gave flowers and sparrows value and compared them with His Father's greater love for man. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. When I realized that the sense of the divine was not coming from nature itself, but from the Creator behind it, I was awed and refocused. Christ's Role for Humanity in Creation The culmination of God's handiwork is proclaimed in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God looked at all He had made and declared it very good. God was pleased with what He had made because it was exactly as He wanted. All creation was aligned and working together while being dependent upon the Maker. 
The apex of God's creativity is man, a creature different from all others because he is formed in the Maker's image. Creation is not very good because of man alone. Man isn't the major emphasis, but is the crowning jewel of a bigger, integrated picture, which God pronounced very good. What did God mean when he said he created Adam in his image and likeness? Unlike the rest of the creatures, who were made by verbal declaration, God, as the master potter, took time to form Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from one of his ribs. The basic meaning of image and likeness is that man was created to represent God. This image-bearing quality is something man is and not what he does. The difference is important. Some evangelicals turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to explain man's role in creation. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. They point out that tend means to serve, and keep means to take care of, concluding that man's purpose is to serve the garden, nature, and protect it so that it becomes productive. These definitions for these words are possible, and there is an element of truth in caring for the land because God gave it as a provision for his creature's physical needs. Yet there is something much deeper. The garden, the tabernacle, and the temple have some interesting similarities in the Bible. The Hebrew words for tend and keep were also used for the priests of God in the temple. Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. As the priest of creation, Adam was to work and keep the garden in obedience to God and for His glory. He apparently was to make the garden a place of continual worship for Him personally and for other image-bearers who had not yet come on the scene. Furthermore, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 proclaims, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This verse caused a firestorm among environmentalists in the late 1960s. Historian and environmentalist Lynn White Jr. wrote a famous paper arguing that belief in religions like Judaism and Christianity was causing ecological problems because of scriptures like Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He claimed that the verse taught that humans were to conquer and exploit nature. The article became popular with the assumption that the words subdue and have dominion were interpreted properly within the context and overall themes of God's character and purpose. They were not. This verse highlights the authority God gave man to rule the creation but raping, pillaging, and otherwise destroying the land as man sees fit are not in keeping with God's character or his original purposes for a creation priest. Nature does not exist to simply satisfy the selfish human appetite. Man can't do anything he wants to the creation. He is a mere steward, or one put in charge of the owner's possessions while the owner is away. We can be good or bad stewards, but woe to those who do not properly manage the precious belongings in a manner reflecting the owner's heart. Luke chapter 12, verse 43.
and chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. In fact, God encouraged His people not to rule harshly. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 43 and 46. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 6. We are called to be priests and shepherd kings as we reflect the heart of our shepherd God through our worship, obedience, and drawing others into worship of Him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. See Psalm 23, verse 1. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31 is not focused on ecology or humans being given license to destroy the land. These verses reflect a call to worship the Creator by representing Him well. Christ the Incarnate Redeemer Many environmental crises are real, and man has caused a boatload of problems, exterminating many species and carelessly polluting the air, water, and land. When Adam disobeyed God, the results were tragic. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. The health of the creation was somehow tied to Adam's right standing before God. The ground, formerly declared good, is now cursed. Death, physical and spiritual separation from God, evil and suffering are rampant on the planet. Humanity's image-bearing and stewardship have been greatly distorted and are often downright evil. Today's environmental issues are symptoms of a much more tragic situation. Man no longer trusts or depends on Jesus to navigate his way through life. Instead, pantheism, biocentrism, and evolutionary atheism are at the heart of the environmentalism movement. Many exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the Creator, Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 25. The injustice is not against the planet. It is against a holy God. As a result, He must pour out His wrath against all of this ungodliness. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So God entered His creation in flesh. Christ Jesus lived a perfect life and took upon Himself the full wrath that was pronounced against us. When we trust in Him for salvation, God breaks the power of sin in our lives, reconciles us to the Creator, and restores us for His original purposes of worship and obedience. Humans best fulfill their original design when we become dependent on the Author of life and go about making disciples who fill the earth with other worshipers who praise and glorify God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. People most concerned with creation care should be those who have been reconciled with Christ. Their motivation is to share the gospel, protect human life, and steward and appreciate the creation in a way that realigns us back to worship and obedience to Christ. Christ the Consummator Christ's followers know that human life is eternal. All people will have to give an account for their actions and beliefs before the Creator. Scripture also speaks of a new heaven and new earth that is coming. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-13. Many believers picture the present world being totally annihilated and have no concerns about nature, because it's all going to burn up anyway. But the Greek meaning of burn up and a parallel verb in the passage, translated found in some versions, may indicate the earth is laid bare or found out, like a refiner's fire that leaves a purer form. This is consistent with the comparison to the great flood, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. The flood purged the world from evil, but did not completely replace it. We were made to be physical beings on a physical planet that has been transformed, redeemed, and restored. That is what the resurrection of the redeemed and the new heavens and earth are all about. Satan will not thwart God's original plan, and God will triumph by bringing to fruition what he initially started in the beginning. Today, I enjoy my long hours in the mountains, woods, and streams, more than ever, because there I find it easy to worship my Creator and Savior. As a biologist and a teacher, I bring students out into the field with me. I can point them to many physical illustrations of God's qualities, including life, beauty, and provision all around us. If students go back into the field and remember the time we discussed the beauty of a flower or the ecological processes that provide our physical needs, I pray it will lead them into worshiping their Creator God. Yes, God has given creation worth beyond its usefulness to man. He has designed it so that we can recognize in creation His attributes that refocus our worship back to Him. And He has created us to represent Him. If these things are so, then God does care about His creation, and He wants us to respond accordingly. That was caring about creation for the right reasons. Both articles from today's episode were written by ecology professor Tom Hennigan, perhaps the most respected ecologist among creationists today. Children and adults love his fully illustrated book called The Ecology Book. Get your copy at AnswersBookstore.com. Tom Hennigan has written several books and articles about a balanced Christian understanding of the environment. In Seeing the Forest Amid the Trees, he shows us that we need to see the Creator's handiwork not just in individual organisms, but in nature's web of life. God's design is amazing. darkness settled around us as we made our way down the forest path. The students' fear was tangible. They clung to each other as if their lives depended on it, while nervous laughter sporadically escaped their lips. One or two struggled not to bolt to the safety of the cabins. I was teaching a high school class on the ecology of New York's Adirondack Mountains, with an emphasis on mammals. The project list included some hands-on work in the forest at night, but my students admitted they were deathly afraid of the dark. So, to quiet their fears, I offered to lead a night hike and introduce them to the forest as few had experienced it. They agreed, reluctantly leaving their flashlights behind. Our journey into ecology, as the Creator intended us to experience it, began. 
The Myth of the Lone Ranger As we learn more about the world, it is becoming clear that nothing lives alone. All life needs other living things. Relationships are prevalent on the earth. This makes sense for those who hold a biblical worldview. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed in an intimate, loving relationship, so relationships are timeless. If God is relational within the essence of His being, it stands to reason that He would display this relational attribute everywhere in His creation. Romans 1 verse 20 Ecology is the study of relationships. Through it, we catalog and explain how organisms relate with each other and with their non-living environments. Ecosystems are the places where these relationships flourish, including both the living and non-living elements of the environment. These relationships express themselves in many ways, such as the division of labor in each ecosystem. Each organism contributes what are called ecological services, providing essential food or clean water, regulating chemicals or temperature, and otherwise supporting the health of nearby creatures. The ways these duties are efficiently divided seem intentionally designed, and every creature has an important role in the whole ecosystem. I wanted my students to see this interdependence firsthand. It has far-reaching implications. For example, past attempts to protect endangered species often failed because many ecologists were trained to see the world as a violent dog-eat-dog contest for survival. They focused on the individual species rather than their vital relationships to all the other species in the ecosystem. When California condors were bred and re-released into the wild in the early 1990s, researchers failed to realize that humans had altered their habitat so that the birds no longer had enough space, and many died. Today, the condors are making a slow comeback, due in part to humans setting aside large, unfragmented ecosystems that provide the relationships condors need for survival. The more we understand about the important services that each organism provides, the clearer it becomes that the only way to protect endangered species is to consider the whole environment, with its corresponding organism services. Research in ecology shows that in many cases, the interdependency of creatures is critical for the life and survival of each living organism. This interdependency is inconsistent with the belief that ecological relationships developed gradually over millions of years. But it is consistent with the Bible's revelation that God created all living organisms in only six days. Organisms need one another. Inching down the dark trail, my timid entourage found a large tree and sat at its base. We remained silent and let the sounds and smells of the forest engulf us. Suddenly, blood-curdling screams echoed from high atop the tree. I tried to calm the terrified students, assuring them we were not witnesses to a murder. Rather, the screams came from baby owls who wanted Mama to feed their empty stomachs. This tree was home to a family of barred owls. Not only did the tree provide a home for these marvelous creatures, it provided other invaluable services, such as oxygen, water, food, soil stability, fertilizer, and shade. Trees even regulate the climate. 
Yet trees depend on the services of others, too, if they are to survive. They need carbon dioxide from the respiration of owls and other forest creatures. They also need their help with pest control, pollination, and seed dispersion. Trees even need the help of fungi, which partner with them to provide their roots with nutrients and water. Owls and trees are intricately connected to each other, along with a diverse array of other creatures. We quietly left the baby owls with their mama and continued slowly down the path. Thirty minutes later, the trail wound its way to the shore of a lake, fed by a little stream. With the forest behind us and the lake before us, a rush of sights, sounds, and smells overwhelmed our senses. Gazing heavenward, we saw pinpricks of starlight everywhere. Along the shore, blinking lights from hundreds of fireflies floated and danced. Feeding fish escaped the confines of their watery home and leaped into the air. Bullfrogs joined in a mating chorus. As we sat and absorbed the scene, there was much to contemplate in God's creation. I noticed a change in the group. Relations with each other were growing. Trust was building. Fear was dissipating. And bonds were forming. I also felt the growing awe in each student as they considered the immensity and diversity of the beauty that surrounded us. Designed to Work Together God's creation is an amazing gift. The more I understand it, the more insight and appreciation I have for my Heavenly Father. Not only are living creatures bound to each other by their mutual services, but they also share common needs that God supplies in other ways. Lakes and streams, for example, are an integral part of the water cycle, providing the fresh water needed for the body functions of all animals. The system recycles and purifies water with the help of a wide range of creatures and filtering minerals, such as bacteria, plants, and soil. And that's just one example. Connected to the water cycle is the phosphorus cycle. Phosphorus is an essential element that all biological life, from bacteria and plants to frogs and humans, needs. Phosphorus is a building block of DNA and cell membranes, necessary for energy, growth, and reproduction. It is even essential for lighting a firefly's lantern. But in its original rock form, phosphorus is unusable. It must first be combined into a compound called phosphate. So, God designed an intricate system to make this nutrient available to living things. As water cycles around the planet, it dissolves phosphate and washes this vital nutrient into soils and bodies of water. There, the phosphate gets absorbed by plants and algae. Plants are another essential contributor to life. As manufacturers and distributors of essential nutrients, plants are the basis, in one sense, for the survival of everything else. Trees and other plants drop leaves and branches onto the ground or directly into a stream or lake. Fungi and bacteria then recycle the plant parts so that other creatures can reuse their precious nutrients, like phosphate, carbon, and nitrogen. Plants themselves depend on a host of others to do their job. While we have long known that all plants need fungi in their roots to help them harvest nitrogen, it has been discovered that all plants also have at least one, if not many, bacteria 
and or fungi living inside other tissues. The plants provide a home and nutrients for bacteria. While early research suggests that the bacteria not only help plants grow better, but also protect them from disease and toxic chemicals. Sitting quietly beside a lake at night, I find it easy to spend hours and hours discussing the marvels of ecological cycles. Freshwater animals depend on food provided directly by the lake system or indirectly by the forest and stream systems. Different animals on the land or in the water specialize in consuming different food sources. Nothing is wasted. Some eat living creatures, and some eat dead ones. Others, like earthworms, depend on bacteria and fungi to break down otherwise inedible foods, like wood. In turn, earthworms continue the recycling process while fertilizing and aerating the soil. At this point, the students had only scratched the surface in their discovery of the intricate web of relationships that binds the forest and lakes together in a marvelously designed tapestry. We get so caught up in the amazing complexity of individual creatures that we lose sight of the large-scale marvel. Each part was designed to fill a special place in the larger whole. As animals eat plants, they often share their food with others. For example, bullfrog tadpoles provide a home and food for roundworms living in their guts. The worms, in turn, help the tadpoles more efficiently process the plants and algae that they swallow, resulting in bigger and healthier tadpoles. No creature serves only itself, and this wonderful fact points to God's special creation rather than evolution over millions of years. The animals that eat the algae growing on rocks, for example, help the algae grow better. If algae is left alone, it grows too thick blocking the light needed for photosynthesis. Algae eaters encourage optimum growth, like humans who mow golf courses. Other animals that shred large, decaying plant matter do not consume every morsel. Smaller animals that lack the tools to eat big chunks seem designed to eat the leftovers. Even solid waste passed from each animal becomes food for others. A life-changing experience. By 1 a.m., our little group was sitting together in a beaver meadow. Gone was the fear that had terrorized them hours before. Enter laughter, sharing lives, and singing. One student was so moved by the experience that she wrote a beautiful poem about the importance of understanding creatures, friendship, and trust, and how those helped her to overcome her fear. I believe these relationships are meant to remind us about God's desire for His children to experience perfect love that casts out fear. 1 John 4, verse 18 Life in Jesus Christ is all about relationships. Our Father's Son went through the pain and agony of the cross so that our relationships with Him and one another could be restored. He would rather have suffered in our place than be in heaven without us. I find His relational attributes everywhere in creation, but many people refuse to acknowledge them because they have bought the lie that life evolved slowly without a Creator. The science of ecology, however, is challenging that notion. 
If the complex ecological systems of all organisms are needed so that any individual can live, how could those relationships have formed slowly? Next time you take a trip into the woods, I encourage you to consider the words of ecologist Dr. Henry Zuhl, who deeply loved the giving creator who is still clearly seen in creation, despite the curse. Romans 1 verse 20. The incredible interdependence between species systems of living things supporting each other is exactly what we would expect to find from a creator who makes grass grow for the cattle and brings forth food from the earth, Psalm 104, verse 14, and who gives food to every creature, Psalm 136, verse 25. It is he who said, Give, and it shall be given unto you, Luke 6, verse 38, and Freely ye have received, freely give. Matthew 10, verse 18. Do not these contain the essence of ecology, giving and receiving, and the modus operandi of heaven? This same Creator of life, Jesus Christ, freely gave His own life on the cross to provide eternal life for sinners who believe in Him. That was written by ecologist Tom Hennigan. His insights remind us how important it is for Christians to start with God's Word rather than human opinion when it comes to hot-button issues. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine. And for the entire team, God bless. Of blood cells in a 70 million year old bone. Sorry, Lofty. The dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. With evolution decades Is your family ago, struggling to find good, wholesome entertainment that actually supports what you believe? Answers in Genesis presents the Creation Museum DVD Collection. As families walk through the Creation Museum, they are amazed by the content and quality of the videos produced exclusively for the museum experience. Now you can own and share 40 of these special videos all on six DVDs. Six Days dramatically brings to life the events of the first week of history, the Tower of Babel, and more. Heaven and Earth highlights the beauty and majesty of God's awe-inspiring handiwork. Flood Geology showcases possible mechanisms behind Noah's flood and its tremendous effects on the Earth. Life reveals a planet that abounds with an amazing variety of living things. You'll clearly see the Creator's hand in the world around you. Dinosaurs and Dragon Legends shows that the biblical record and dragon legends from around the world all proclaim man really did walk with the dinosaurs. The Last Adam. The first Adam brought death and suffering into the world. The last Adam, Jesus, brings eternal life to those who receive his gift of salvation. Complete with director's commentaries and other bonus content, This six-DVD collection for your home is sure to excite and edify. Provide your family with timeless entertainment that is educational and faith-building. 
To order this exclusive series, visit our website at AnswersInGenesis.org or call 1-800-778-3390.